Welcome to the Minor Consult, where I speak to the leaders shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm joined by Darren Walker, whose visionary leadership as president of the Ford Foundation has guided the social justice nonprofit for nearly a decade. Darren's story is one of perseverance and an unwavering pursuit of justice. I'm excited to discuss his career journey and vision for 21st century philanthropy. Darren, welcome. It's great to see you. Thank you, Lord, for the invitation. Darren, today you're one of the world's most influential people, as noted by Time Magazine, Rolling Stone Magazine, Ebony, and many others. But you started out with modest means. You were born in a charity hospital, and you grew up in a small town in segregated Texas. Could you tell us about your childhood and how your background has informed your worldview and your leadership? Well, thank you, Lloyd, and uh, I'm not really sure those recognitions uh, amount to uh, a hill of beans, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm uh, flattered nonetheless and, and uh, happy uh, to be a part of your program. My journey has been a uniquely American journey, made possible because I was lucky enough to be born in this country. And even though I was born uh, to very uh, humble uh, means, my mother had me in a charity hospital in a rural uh, part of uh, Louisiana. I never knew my father. Uh, we, as, uh, as a young person, uh, I was uh, uh, raised in East Texas, in rural Ames, Texas, population 1,200. And I was very fortunate, Lloyd, because when I was five years old, uh, a woman approached the little shotgun houses on our dirt road in Ames, Texas, and she was enrolling uh, the children in a new government program that President Johnson had just signed the legislation for called Head Start. So I was lucky enough to be in the inaugural class in the summer of 1965 and, and head start, and it really was my head start. Um, and I feel like on so many levels, my journey is punctuated by generosity, private philanthropy, and a government, a government that believed in the human potential of every boy and girl uh, in America. And so I was very fortunate I felt like, uh, in spite of my circumstances, I felt like my country was cheering me on, that America wanted me to win. And so uh, I was able to, because of those inputs, get on the mobility escalator and ride it as far as my, uh, my energy and my uh, passion and ambition could take me. And Darren, after earning two bachelor's degrees and a law degree from the University of Texas, you practiced law in New York and you were an investment banker, but you pivoted to the nonprofit world after a decade. What made you decide to make this career move? Well, growing up poor, one of the things that happens to you is you realize that as an adult, your aspiration will be to never be poor again. Uh, there is something traumatizing about being a young boy and waiting for your mother to pick you up after school, after debate, 
and her not showing up because her car has been repossessed or coming home and having the phone turned off because she couldn't pay uh, the phone bill. And I think what happens to people who grow up like that is that the trauma, the, the pain, the humiliation that comes with that gives us a resolve. And certainly in my case, it gave me a resolve that I wanted to have some semblance of financial security, not only for myself, but because I knew I would be probably taking care of my mother and uh, other family. And so, so I did. I, I came to New York and I gladly, unapologetically uh, went to Wall Street and was very lucky to have 10 great years. And uh, I did decide, uh, because for me, the, um, the idea of working on Wall Street and the notion of piling up money uh, was never an aspiration um, and would never be fulfilling. And I was lucky because I reached a point where I said, I'm not going to work for a bit. I'm going to figure out what I want to do. And I took a year off and I was volunteering and figuring out things. And I found myself um, spending more time in Harlem. Uh, this was the early 90s. Uh, Harlem, hard to believe. There was a time when uh, you couldn't get people to move to Harlem. Um, and, and certainly I moved to Harlem uh, in the mid 90s. I met uh, Reverend Calvin Butts, who was the pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church and with Karen Phillips together, they started this organization to redevelop Harlem. And I got very excited about it. You, to follow up on that, so you, you started in the nonprofit world with Abyssinian and then uh, moved to Rockefeller and, and of course then president of the Ford Foundation. What has informed your thinking about how to approach your work in philanthropy? And and you, you've developed, and we could, we'll talk about, a very distinctive philosophy and approach to philanthropy. Can you tell us how that's evolved over your experiences and, and maybe how it's evolving now? Sure. Well, you know, Lloyd, one of the experiences I had that has had a profound impact on me today and my work is the experience of being a 13-year-old busboy at a restaurant. Yeah. And that experience uh, to be a busboy, to be a black uh, boy working off the books, really, uh, in that role, which is really to be invisible, to be in a room, to take the things that people don't want, no longer uh, want, and uh, to uh, not have one's uh, humanity acknowledged uh, is a, a really powerful experience. And for me, it has absolutely helped shape how I understand what it feels like to live life on the margins, to be invisible, to have people look right through you as if you don't exist. And I think a lot of people in our country and the world feel that way today. When I went to the Rockefeller Foundation, we uh, were given a lot of uh, materials to read about philanthropy, most notably 
Andrew Carnegie's seminal 1889 essay, The Gospel of Wealth, which is the foundational document for American philanthropy, indeed today, global philanthropy. And in it, Carnegie talks about uh, charity, generosity, uh, his religious uh, faith that uh, inspired him to give. I found uh, an obscure document uh, that Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, a few months before he was murdered, published. And it was about philanthropy. And here's what he said about philanthropy. Philanthropy is commendable, but it should not allow the philanthropist to overlook the economic injustice which makes philanthropy necessary. So Dr. King was saying something different. Carnegie was completely comfortable with the idea of inequality, never questioning the ways in which his wealth was, was achieved. Dr. King said, actually, the philanthropist needs to be reflective about how they made their money, uh, needs to move not just from uh, a position of charity and generosity, but the real work of philanthropy must be justice and dignity. And that's a different kind of philanthropy, I think, and it is certainly uh, inspired me and my colleagues and our trustees at Ford to to engage in some of that excavation uh, of the root causes of the problems and the ills we seek uh, to uh, to uh, improve to address. You've, Darren, you've written about that, and it, it is a very powerful vision. And and to underscore what you just said, it's it's different than the vision perhaps that the Ford Foundation had had in the past, and also the vision of many other U.S. nonprofits, the vision that they were built on. And, and in your 2019 book, From Generosity to Justice, A New Gospel of Wealth, um, you, you talk about how this vision came about. But, but I think in particular, could you describe now, in light of COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, uh, the vision would seem now more timely, more relevant, more in need than ever before. And can you tell me how what you see as the next steps at the Ford Foundation, but also more broadly uh, for other organizations, other philanthropists that are looking um, to you and to the Ford Foundation to lead the way in these changes in the approach to philanthropy? Well, I'm not sure the Ford Foundation or I am leading the way. Lord, I hope we're contributing okay. to a conversation in philanthropy. And that conversation, I think, has shifted, as you suggest, these last three years. The combination of the pandemic and the murders of the summer of 2020, no doubt, uh, have had a material, profound impact uh, on our country. I think for philanthropists, what this really means is uh, coming to grips with some of the realities that are very difficult uh, to address, particularly if you're privileged, if the very systems and structures in this country, our economic system, 
our education system, our housing system, if these systems have benefited you, uh, it's hard to, uh, to come to grips with uh, the ways in which they have disadvantaged others. Uh, and, and so for the philanthropist, for the successful American, um, it's hard to call out a system that has some inherent flaws in it that produces too much inequality that benefits people like you and me and our friends and compounds the disadvantage of the already disadvantaged. Because for successful people in America, we've been winners in this system. During the pandemic, when so many Americans were hurting, when essential workers were at risk every day and being paid low wages, we were doing better. I mean, most of us, most of us, when I mean us, I mean people like you and me and people in positions like you and me, we came out better economically, financially on the other side of the pandemic than before. And so there is something that philanthropy should be doing uh, to, to question the system, not to tear the system down. I'm a capitalist. I believe there's no better way to organize an economy, an economic system than capitalism. But I also believe the kind of capitalism we're seeing in America today is not producing the kind of shared prosperity we need and the kind of shared prosperity and social mobility that has made our democracy so strong, that has made America a beacon for the world. If we're going to become just another unequal country, we'll be joining the ranks of Latin American countries and countries in South Asia and in other parts of the world, countries that we used to pejoratively call third world countries, where inequality, uh, where systems uh, for the wealthy were set apart from the systems for the poor, um, and where the wealthy live behind gated uh, communities and, and the rest of society lives and fends for themselves. That's not America. And that's certainly not the country uh, that I love and the country that has inspired so many people around the world. Darren, I, I've always learned from, benefited from your writings. And, and I, I want to commend in particular an essay to our listeners, an essay you wrote and was published in the New York Times on July 4th of this year. Um, and I, I wanted to read two sentences. First of all, everyone should read this essay, in, in my view. It, it, it's profoundly impactful, and it, it relates to the topics you were just discussing. But, but two sentences in particular that I wanted to read, and maybe if you could comment on a bit further. One, our founders bequeathed to us something radical, something unprecedented, the tools with which to build a multiracial, multi-ethnic, pluralistic democracy that extends the privilege of American identity to all. And then the second uh, quote that I wanted to call to our, our readers, our uh, listeners' attention is, the road to enduring justice runs through reconciliation, and the road to reconciliation runs through truth. 
Can can you talk about how you how you compose this essay? Again, it's it's incredibly powerful and meaningful, and it it, it I think it directly addresses these points of convincing those of us who have the American privilege uh, to look at our system differently and with a new eye and a new commitment uh, to changing the system that has benefited us but has not benefited many others. Can, can you give some background to that and, and sort of where you see uh, what you talk about in the essay going from here? Well, I was motivated to write that piece in anticipation of July 4th, um, a holiday that we uh, revere, and I certainly um, reflect on uh, with great uh, pride and gratitude that this country was created and that this nation, which is an experiment, a radical idea, the idea that a nation, a democracy could exist made up of so many different races, religions, experiences, backgrounds, histories could come under one nation, one national idea is, was a radical idea, an experiment. And what I worry about is that, and this is not just a, a, a privilege and a non-privilege, too many Americans, both the left and the right, uh, seem to uh, be unwilling to hold the complexity of our history, the richness of it. And what I mean by that is we, we, we create and live in these binaries. So I referenced the founding fathers because I do believe that our founders were brilliant geniuses. They crafted documents uh, that while flawed were indeed uh, the foundations for what has been the greatest democracy the world has ever known. But they were also flawed men. And uh, there is no doubt they were human beings with the foibles uh, and uh, the egos and greed and narcissism and all the things that we humans uh, possess. And I'm able to hold both of those narratives. Thomas Jefferson, uh, yes, he was a slave holder. Uh, yes, uh, he wrote some very odious things in, in the notes uh, on the state of Virginia. But he also said to his friend Samuel DuPont, the work of America is to build a just nation. So I want to hold Jefferson to his words. And so I'm able, and I, and, and I was, my, my hope has been that more of us can, as Americans, as we celebrate our collective identity, yes, I am a black gay man. And that identity uh, is something that I live with and am proud of. But the identity I am most proud of is that of being an American. It is that identity that binds us all 
and a collective commitment to American ideals. And so I was, I was hoping to uh, make the case that we shouldn't be living in these binaries where, where we create these mythologies of, of a history that never existed, where we, where we deify our founders as perfect uh, people, um, uh, or we demonize them as horrible, uh, irredeemable characters. Uh, both of those are wrong. And, and we need to be able to uh, embrace um, the good and the bad and understand that from that, we can, as a country, we've got the, the makings to, 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 be, to potentially continue to live. Uh, and I think together, and I think the question of, uh, you know, this, this idea of the road uh, to truth, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not going to get to reconciliation without truth. And we're not going to get to justice without empathy. And the problem is when we have leaders who simply behave in ways that dehumanize other human beings, that seek to uh, create narratives about other human beings that question their humanity uh, and their very sort of identity. Um, that's not helping us as a nation. And it's not helping us as a nation to seek uh, to live without facts. I mean, it is troubling that we literally have some who would legislate willful ignorance that this notion of being misinformed is admired and is desired. Um, th that is no way to, to build a great country. Darren, what are some of the milestones that you see on this path to reconciliation, on this path towards defining, acknowledging, and acting upon the truth? Because as you've pointed out, and you described so eloquently in the essay, um, it can fall off on either side, right? We fall off on the side of cynicism, which is that, yes, we've heard all this before, um, and yet uh, the injustices that we've, we've mentioned already and many others still exist. Or on the other side, which is that they never really existed, um, and we you know, we just should ignore the truths um, and live in ways that, that benefit our own individual interests or the interests of our individual identity groups. So navigating that path of truth towards reconciliation, it, it seems is becoming more and more challenging. And I'm just interested in, in your thoughts, your wisdom on how we identify and pursue that path. Well, I think it's important for us to be resolute in uh, speaking about this as leaders. Uh, and, and I mean that 360, 
I, I, am, I worry about um, those who would say we have to teach history a certain way, uh, that we have to uh, delete things that make some of us uncomfortable. Um, I also worry about a culture that also says uh, on a university campus, we won't have diverse thought, even thought that might offend some, that that must be prohibited. Um, we have to be willing from wherever we sit, whether we are progressives or conservatives or Christians or Jews or Muslims or atheists or whatever we may be, we have to be willing to have a set of principles that guide us, framework that allows us to make decisions, to make assessments, to make judgments about what is appropriate and what is not. Uh, and of course, this is not easy. This is from where one sits. You can see the very issue dilemma in a, in a, from a different perspective and come out with a different answer. But at least to live at a time when especially our leaders, the people we look to, are doing all we can to build bridges, to understand that uh, this country cannot sustain itself if our leaders can't model civility, can't do the things that our founders did, sit around the table with people you might have diametrically opposed views on uh, and engage in the problem solving, in finding solutions. Um, and, and so for those of us who have a responsibility to lead organizations, to be engaged on these questions, I just think we've gotta, we've gotta step up our game. And it's not easy because Courage is discouraged today. What leader wants to step out into and speak about a fraught topic? Uh, who wants to stand up and be counted when you know that the mob on Twitter can go after you and get you fired? Uh, who wants to take on that kind of risk. And so I think we have to be prepared to speak about that and, and to be willing to engage in the ways and the things that do make us uncomfortable. Uh, Congressman John Lewis said that we have to get uncomfortable if we're gonna make progress in this country. And especially we who have benefited the most from the bounty of this great country. Darren, what are some of the projects, programs, and activities at the Ford Foundation today that you're most excited about in terms of their impact on social justice and on the, the ideals that you've been speaking about in our discussion today? Well, Lloyd, you are there in Silicon Valley, the technology 
uh, hub of America and indeed the world. And one of the newest areas we are working on is uh, a program called Technology and Society, where we are examining uh, the uh, opportunities and the risks associated with this new digital world we are now living in, particularly as it relates to vulnerable populations, people who uh, may not uh, be resilient in the face of this technological onslaught, uh, who may not have the resources, uh, and who may, in the analog world, have been discriminated against, uh, had uh, to deal with uh, prejudice and bias, that this all now moves onto, into the digital world. So we're uh, investing a lot of resources into a new area called public interest technology, where we hope to get, as we did in the 1960s, in creating the public interest law field, to create this new field of public interest technology, technology where technologists, computer scientists, engineers, uh, rather than going to work uh, for Meta or Google, they say, I'm going to take my skills and capacities and work for government or work for an NGO, uh, work for the Environmental Defense Fund or Planned Parenthood or whomever, um, because there's a lot of good that technologists can do in the public interest on behalf of communities, especially communities who are poor and vulnerable and often left out and left behind. Darren, lastly, there are two questions I like to ask all my guests who are successful leaders like yourself. First, what do you think are the most important qualities in a leader today? And for you, I'd say particularly in the nonprofit sector. I believe the most important quality is humility. Uh, a humility to understand that in my world, of course, and philanthropy, the people who are closest to the problems we're seeking to solve are our best hope for solutions. And that we need to not privilege uh, the voices of those uh, only with expertise, credentials, but that we also need to hear uh, and to acknowledge the power in the lived experience of the very people in the very communities we're trying to help. And what gives you hope for the future? I am reminded, Lloyd, of the poet Langston Hughes, who, a black man in America in the 1930s, who lived a life marginalized, a great poet, a brilliant writer, but had to make ends meet however he could. But he believed in America and he was hopeful for America. His great poem, Let America Be America Again, starts in the first stanza, Let America Be America Again. America never was America to me. But he ends in the final stanza, 
he says, but oh yes, one day America will be. Now this was hope from a man who knew that in his lifetime, he would not see justice or equality, and yet he believed in America. So I stand on the shoulders of men like Langston Hughes and women like Fannie Lou Hamer, who knew they would never see justice and hope that someday a future generation would realize that. So for me, I have no reason to be anything other than hopeful. I reflect on that history, the people who came before me, uh, the blood that was shed so that I could get on that mobility escalator. And so I'm grateful and hopeful because I live in America, because of the history of my people in this country and my belief in our future. Well, Darren, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for what you're doing as a leader, uh, for the wisdom that you share with all of us in your written words, in your spoken words, and in your actions um, as a truly influential and impactful leader. Thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Ford Foundation President Darren Walker. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.